Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. How did it come to this? It's me! It's your Sam! Don't you know your Sam? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bob. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Great Stories. You know, the ones that really matter. It's also the last narrative episode of The Two Towers. <laughs> but first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps at every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. So for today's discussion, we're going to talk about film editing, um, because I think it plays a big part into how the ending of The Two Towers comes together. So to take a very academic approach to it, what is film editing, which is known very quickly or badly as the invisible art of making movies? To quote the great Philip Seymour Hoffman, the film is made in the editing room. The shooting of the film is about shopping, almost. It's like going to get all the ingredients together, and you've got to make sure you before you leave the store that you've got all the ingredients. So editing is basically the art, technique, and practice of assembling shots into a coherent sequence that involves selecting cutting points, how long shots should be in terms of timing and pacing. Um, and a good example of this is the Gollum on along this episode, um, because at the very last parts of this movie, Gollum's talking about how he's going to betray Frodo and Shelob, and it's all basically one take. Um, Obviously, there's special effects and little tricks of the camera in there, but it all essentially counts as one shot as presented to the viewer. So the film editor can then be seen as the composer of the visuals, as he's coming up how to transition from shots to next, what shots should be juxtaposed uh, next to each other. And basically, the better the film editor is doing their job, you won't really notice the editing unless there's a specific reason to. Um, so. Anything you want to add to that, Emily? Yes. Um, editors are the most important people in the business. Uh, and um, I, mm -hmm. I think there's something um, like we talk a lot about directors, right? And like directors are always the kind of name brand of uh, of a movie. And like, especially since the kind of rise of the new Hollywood move movement and the uh, 70s, you know, there is a certain... Um, celebrity around uh certain directors so like your steven spielberg's your kubrick's your coppola's your george lucas's your james cameron's uh, it's uh, Catherine bigelow see i know a single woman director um like <laughs> um is we know the director um and and we think of the the we think of movies as the product of of that director director's vision um but editors are by far and away the most important part of, of these movies um the the kind of best example of this is star wars um star wars was and this is 1977 star wars uh now known as a new hope star wars was a fucking disaster by the time they were like six weeks out from releasing it um it was horribly put together they had a whole bunch of effect shots they had a whole bunch of actor shots um that did not cohere into anything remotely approaching a sensible 
the story. Um, it looked like shit. The timings were off. There was no good music behind it. Um, Star Wars was really saved in the editing room, and it was saved in the editing room by editor Marsha Lucas, who did mercifully, I think, win the, win the Academy Award for for her contributions there. Um, <laughs> but but you know, while someone like George Lucas had the sort of vision and the the kind of management skills to to get all of these teams going, working together. Uh, to to produce the kind of raw materials of Star Wars, um, the Star Wars as George Lucas uh, produced it um, was not was not workable. I I, I feel like every other uh, episode of this podcast, I encourage people to go look up the original trailer, the original 1977 trailer for Star Wars. Um, but I'm especially encouraging that here. Um, if you go look up the original 1977 version of uh, trailer of Star Wars, um, you will see what a disaster it was. It it was. Uh, held together with like duct tape and prayers. It looked like shit. You could you could tell that it wasn't really fully refined. Um, and and the reason it is the the kind of flawless um, example payon of a of a of an action movie of a fantasy movie that it that we think of it is today is because Marsha Lucas put blood, sweat, and tears into pulling all of these kind of raw materials uh, together and 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 putting them into uh, something that looks reasonable. And and to be quite honest, we don't necessarily watch Star Wars and think, God, the editing on this is great. Wow, isn't that such a good... Well, maybe with Star Wars, the transitions, the white PowerPoint transitions, maybe we do think of it there. But for the <laughs> most part, when we're seeing excellent editing on, on screen, um, we're not really noticing it. We're just seeing a well-put-together um, movie. And and this is, you know, these editors really toil in, in, in the shadows to, to put together things that are so much um, better than than sort of the sum of it, their parts. Um, and I think, you know, we on this podcast are like, well, we're, we're all right, but we're largely guilty of just being like, yeah, Peter Jackson shit. Um, but, you know, nothing that a director does it has any sort of meaning or value um, without the the work uh, and the, the craftsmanship of an editor. Um, and, and so making sure that, like, when you are watching films, you're thinking about these sort of constituent elements of what film editing is. Um, it is just a is better, smarter and, and like more pro worker, I guess, or more pro artisan way of engaging with film because you're really thinking about all of the the sort of moving parts and all of the elements of labor that that went into it and, and made it um, made it great or made it shit. Um, beyond just the kind of uh, trademarked brand name of the director that slapped across the the, the movie posters. Yeah, I think, in fact, a lot of the way we talk about films in terms of auteur theory with the director is specifically an anti-labor push in um, cinemas during the 1920s and 1930s um, because they were kind of pushing against the collaborative and collective nature of making movies. Um, so that's why they forwarded the idea of the Academy and awarding the best director and making the director essentially the author of a movie. It was all part of a general larger push against labor in Hollywood uh, during like the quote unquote golden years. Um, the Citations Needed podcast, if you have it, have heard of that, um, they did an episode on this and it was really eye opening in terms of how much we talk about movies and giving so much credit to directors is really a result of anti-labor movements from like 100 years ago. There, there's something kind of interesting in that because like the rise of the professional author, at least as far as novels are concerned, um, was was kind of fascinatingly um, a, a kind of, well, okay. So, so 
professional, like people have always written books um, and people have always written stories and put their names to it. I mean, you know, we've got Homer uh, as the sort of uh, <laughs> archetypal old fucking author that, that we think of. Um, but but authors have sort of always existed in, in a kind of generic sense. Um, but authors as a profession, authorship as a profession is actually a fairly new historical phenomenon. Um, and it, it arised um, in response to, to like a couple moving pieces as all things historically do. But like um, uh, one of the things that um, really sort of catalyzed it was was the rise of capitalism um, in in the late 17th and early 18th century uh, centuries um, particularly in the United Kingdom um, and there was a there was a push to recognize um, the the sort of property well not the sort of the property rights of authors um, authors like David Hume for example here in Scotland um, produced works of either of art or of 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 philosophy um and traditionally how how the kind of distribution of books was done was um authors basically signed over over everything uh, the 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 word the written word and everything in it to uh, booksellers book publishers who then owned it um almost in perpetuity and the authors really didn't receive um either very much credit control or uh, compensation for that the, those works but uh, come the sort of turn of the century from the 17th to the 18th there's a, a, a a rise of, of interest as part of the Enlightenment in uh, the concept of property rights. Um, and and um, authors like James McPherson as well, uh, another Scottish writer, or uh, David Hume is another kind of linchpin of this, um, they, they pushed for property rights over this thing that they had produced intellectually. And this is intellectual property. And, and so they said, you know, when, when, um, when I, as an author, go out and write my words, um, those words that I have written, that I have labored to put uh, on paper, um, are my property. Um, even though they are not tangible, they are they are um, intellectual. They are still my property. And, and as part of this push, there was the creation of a copyright act. Uh, in, in here in the UK, it is the Act of Anne. This is like 1800, 1803, maybe. Um, and what it what it did, you know, without getting into the sort of specific mechanics of it, is it basically said. Um, authors are due their pay um, because they have produced something, um, an intellectual property. And not only are they due their pay, they're also due a certain amount of control um, over what happens to those words, um, who owns the copyright, who owns the ability to keep publishing uh, that the, the, those written words in their books. And this really started to help to define the professional author. Um, and, and what it effectively did was cut, carve out a sort of um, a, a petty bourgeois, like it is literally, we would call it petty bourgeois, um, sector of the economy um, for, that, w that had not previously existed. The professional author uh, was not a viable um, uh, career in, until the sort of rise of copyright. Um, and so it's only at that point that we start to think of authors, uh, novel authors, um, as a brand in, in and of themselves. And, and in a sort of rote uh, Marxist sense, uh, this is a positive, um, this is a positive outcome to history because it is, it is um, re sort of reserving the rights of the laborer, um, not the worker, but like the laborer um, away from, from the rights of sort of just like general capital. Um, and, and so, or, or, or of the, the bourgeois, I guess, uh, to put it in even more orthodox terms. Um, and, and that, that move historically is, isn't, is overall a, a net positive And it is something that like Marxists would generally cheer on in, in the historical narrative. 
Um, the same thing happening to, to movie directors, though, is, as you so rightly point out, not a historical positive. Um, not at all a historical positive, because what it does is it actually elides. Um, a director is not the only person acting, um, editing, writing, um, doing the special effects, doing the lighting, doing the costume and makeup on, on a movie, um, unlike a, a, a novel, like an author of a novel, um, who is the sort of sole progenitor of, of that work. Um, and so the kind of conflation of like uh, authors, you know, writers um, with directors as authors into one thing um, is this really aggressively negative um, historical trend. Um, and it is something that like should really kind of be opposed in, in, in all cases. And even though I know I'm specifically deeply lazy about this shit and we'll just be like Peter Jackson uh, did the Iraq war uh, via uh, the two towers and, and, and call it a day there. It's actually a wider trend that we really need to, to move away from um, if you are uh, of, of a left-wing persuasion. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, um, as the U.S. is really gearing up for the rise of McCarthyism and also desperately trying to put down, like, in Chicago, in, um, in, in New York, and to a lesser extent, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, trying to put down these um, burgeoning labor movements like the, you know, the Knights of Labor. It's the genesis of the AFL-CIO. It's the, the sort of rise of the theater unions, the, the guilds, the craft guilds. Um, that they're pushing these singular individuals above everyone else um, it is no is no mistake. It is no coincidence. Um, and it you know to see things like um, McCarthyism um, or the sort of Red Scare, the the uh, late tens, uh, early twenties, um, as part of this push to to you know have the great man theory of um, art is I is I think something that should not be ignored in this wider conversation. <clears throat> nope. But we're going to start with talking about a great man of filmmaking here. <laughs> yeah. uh, at, actually, no, he's just the father of editing. But, you know, that is a pretty important historical note to make. Um, that would be Edwin S. Porter, um, who was really the first to kind of tell story by using multiple shots. He created transitions and using editing to relate unrelated shots. Um, that's really at the heart of what editing is. Um, usually you're relating them in some kind of sequential or chronological order, although that is not necessarily the case all the time. Um, and then in the early years, film editing was done by literally physically cutting and pasting films together in a movie editing machine, which is called a movieola, <laughs> which I just think we just don't name things like something Ola enough anymore. <laughs> um, we definitely need to go back to that naming convention. Hey, I got a movieola over here. Uh, don't get to me for that one. Um, yes. Uh, so Doing I think this anti-Italian is... hate. <laughs> Um, I'm always no. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to say that on air. Um, yes. So as this is a podcast about adaptations, um, I think it's also really important to point out that like one of the kind of key um, elements that separates the theater from cinema is the ability to edit. Um, it is this. Uh, you know, they're in theater, right? They're actors. They're on stage. Um, they are directed by a director, but when they are acting on stage, they're going, um, you know, through the conduit of the director's vision, um, actor directly to the audience. Um, in cinema, there is a there is a just not only a chronological but also sort of artistic and creative um, separation barrier between actor and and audience, um, and that separation is the editor. Um, and so when you think about like why is it that 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 cinema isn't exactly like theater besides the obvious element of like it's not live um, and, and it's not people right in front of you, um, there is also this additional component, this additional filter that is the editor, um, and and so different differentiating for editors, differentiating the work that they do from the sort of standard work of a stage director, um, 
and is a really crucial part of defining what cinema is and what cinema will become throughout the the 20th uh, and start of 21st centuries. So getting a little bit into what we're going to be talking about related to these scenes today is parallel editing or cross-cutting, which is usually just the jumping between two different scenes that can be separated over space or time. Um, I think the two towers is a great example of them just being uh, separated over space as we have three different theaters of quote-unquote war, uh, Askiliath, Isengard, and Helm's Deep. Um, but you can also do it temporally or as in time, like say The Godfather Part Two where um, you're jumping back and forth between Michael Corleone in the 1950s and into the 60s, I believe, versus uh, Don Corleone from the late 1890s into the early 1900s. Uh, so uh, do you got any favorite examples of movies that use parallel editing or cross-cutting between different scenes and locations? Ooh, you know what? Um, actually, this is so lame. This is so ridiculous that I'm going to use this, but it's, it is my favorite one of all time because um, it's so loose and vague about what the fuck it is actually jumping across. Um, but The Empire Strikes Back. Um, our trio, our magical heroic trio of Han, Leia, and Luke are not together for uh, any part, almost any part of The Empire Strikes Back, but we cut between them and see and learn different elements of, of what the fuck is going on in each of their lives. But um, one of the things that I think is so magical about the editing on, on The Empire Strikes Back is that it is spawned a 45 almost 50 year long discourse on how much time is actually happening like passing during these scenes and and are they happening actually like chronologically in parallel or you know are we going and seeing luke over the course of six weeks and then cutting back to two weeks after the last time we've seen luke han and leia still fucking around on their their uh, 40 days and 40 nights to to bespin um and i think like the the kind of magic of something like the empire strikes back and something like um star wars writ large really exists in 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 the kind of um clear-cut ambiguity as insane as that sounds the clear-cut ambiguity of the editing and and that kind of cross-cutting okay i really love that first of all because when people talk about a star wars movie in terms of the editing they often talk about return of the jedi and it's finished <laughs> uh, but most importantly i love this fact about how you can use your editing like this or parallel editing or cross-cutting between these two different storylines to kind of massage over some of that time stuff um, I'm going to jump to one of like the most heavily criticized Game of Thrones episodes that is Beyond the Wall season seven, episode six, uh, where they go, uh, Jon Snow and a group of people go beyond the wall so that they can fucking recover a zombie to take whatever. <laughs> um, but there's this whole point where they basically send Gendry, the character, not my cat back to the wall so and he goes off sprinting so that they can send a raven to daenerys um and then daenerys eventually comes in and flies in with her dragon like half a continent away um and there's just some points in that episode which is kind of flimsy logically and time-wise anyways but if they had just used some fades um to show time passing to kind of cover that gap between gendry leaving and daenerys arriving that would have smoothed over like 90% of the complaints of the discourse but because they were using like hard cuts um it was basically like 8 years of time were passing during these like 8 seconds of fighting we're seeing on this frozen ice lake it was just like so goofy whereas editing can be a way to kind of gloss over those cinematic inconsistencies that you need to just make a narrative snap into place at the right time um, and i think empire strikes back is just a stunning example of that yep 
Oh, yeah. I, I, I think there's also something like, um, again, this is kind of my Emily's one woman crusade against realism in cinema. But like in when, you know, when you're performing something on stage, when, when you're putting on a stage production, um, the the like the, the sort of level of suspension of disbelief is that much higher um, because people know that the shit that they're saying on stage is not actually happening. Um, but like you can be kind of jolty and junky about your transitions, you know, it, not just to sort of blackout, go to the next scene. Um, you know, you can live in the world in which you accept that you see stage hands moving shit around in the darkness. Um, and, and I think there's a fear of that in a lot of cinema. Um, there's a fear of accepting that, that, that there are things about the media, um, the medium that will just jar people that won't look like real life. And people, you know, people jo- like, um, people talk shit about the, <laughs> the stupid, ridiculous fades and, uh, the PowerPoint transitions and, and Star Wars. But I think there's something kind of good about that because it sets the kind of expectation, which is like, this is a movie. Don't forget it's a movie. Don't be ridiculous and pretend that this is real. And since we're doing that anyways, here's something kind of fun and cutesy, kitschy to look at. Um, And I think that kind of art of, you know, I'm not saying that everything has to use those PowerPoint transitions, but like the obsession with the like straight cuts to things um, and not allowing for like, you know, the Indiana Jones style map across the screen, Um, not allowing Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. that in in movies is I think a real loss. Um, And it comes from, I think, a totally deranged and ridiculous ridiculously stupid sort of instinct which is oh everything must seem totally real and gritty but like i think bringing back that kind of more um medium aware i guess approach to editing where like you just accept that you're in a movie and you're not trying to fight that back um i think that that is one of these things that like has a lot of benefits for cinema writ large and we're just losing it because we're obsessed with stupid things people painting hyper realistic but ugly art on like tiktok or whatever this is just what all cinema is now Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm I think the uh, first example that jumps to mind for me in terms of uh, like kind of cross-cutting in terms of storytelling is the end of Silence of the Lambs, uh, where there is... So um, I assume most people know the story of Silence of the Lambs who are listening to this, but they think they have located the killer, um, the serial killer, Buffalo Bill, and they think he's in some house in Chicago. Mm. Um, whereas uh, the lead of the movie, Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, she's just following up on some other leads that are kind of tangential to what they think is the main lead. Um, and it's kind of cutting back and forth between um, the two different places, the SWAT team about to burst into this house in Chicago versus Jodie Foster just doing her criminal investigation of witnesses. And as the SWAT team is about to bust into the house you think Buffalo Bill is in, uh, Jodie Foster like rings the doorbell and Buffalo Bill's answer, and it's just her and him for the final act. Mm. Um, and they used the... Uh, what's it called? The story that was happening away from Buffalo Bill to set up all that tension. And you're like, oh shit, these guys are fucking armoring down because this is going to be a tough fucking fight. Um, so they're all in like body armor and shotguns and there's like 12 of them. And then here's, you know, Clarice Starling here with just like six shots. And then she's soon going to be like, have no lights and be in the dark of his basement where there's like decaying bodies and moths flying everywhere. Um, it's just a, such an effective way of using the cross-cutting between two stories and using the one that's kind of the red herring to set up the one that is the actual meat of the finish. Oh, I love that scene as well. I love it all so much. Uh, every, everything about Silence of the Lambs is perfect to me, but like the the kind of using the fact that you are aware that that it is a movie and that not and it's not real life, and so you don't have to have all of the facts on screen to sort of not trick the viewers, but like not 
fully reveal i mean obviously like this is so this is such a fucking stupid rudimentary thing that, that you say but my god i just watched the mandalorian season three episode one last night and <laughs> heaven forbid there be anything subtle or any like implication in anything um dennis voice the implications um but like you know <laughs> the, the silence of the lambs is really a master class in showing just enough and n- never showing too much um and it is a lost i'll stop being a grumpy old boomer about it but it, it's a lost art i swear and i think another place that's very easy to uh spot out like the parallel editing and cross-cutting is like ensemble films um and maybe most specifically in a heist uh, most heist films like oceans 11 yeah. or Loke and lucky or even something like inception um these are movies that usually have groups of people doing different things all at the same time. Um, even in Ocean's 11 to the point where you see Steven Soderbergh using like comic book paneling to do <laughs> his transitions so that like while George Clooney is doing this on the casino room floor, we see Brad Pitt slide into frame as he's going to be doing his part. Whereas uh, Casey Affleck and oh my God, I'm naming all the worst people in the fucking <laughs> cast here. Um, Matt Damon, he's mostly inoffensive, right? Other yes, than being he's from, just Boston. from Boston. Uh, <laughs> oh god we spend way too much time talking to each other emily Uh, (laughs) uh, but those are another great examples of how um you can use um cross cutting to really tell a fun and affecting story because i think of those movies mostly as fun movies like it's just fun seeing all the little pieces in motion as they're pulling off this bigger heist um, I think another example would be like Robert Altman films who does these like big sweeping ensemble pieces. I think Shortcuts is maybe the most famous of them. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia is another uh, movie like this where it's basically the story of several people all at once. Um, and then usually they all kind of crash into each other at the end of the movie in w- ways you don't expect. Um, Margaret uh, is a movie I watched recently a couple of years ago. Um, and that was a movie that had a bunch of like what seemed like disparate plots. Um, and then they all ended up kind of smashing into each other at the end in a really interesting and dynamic way. So um, yeah, uh, this is a great way to tell stories. And I think it, you see why it would be appropriate for the Lord of the Rings to talk about this, because especially at this point of the story, um, basically a lot of our main characters have been thrown to the wind. Um, we have three individual plot threads that are going to start conversing on each other into just two for Return of the King. Um, they do kind of spread out a little bit, but by the end of Pelennor Fields, we basically have everyone here except for Sam and Frodo and Gollum. Uh, so, uh, the two towers is really the height of the disparateness of the story. So one of the struggles or challenges rather of filming this part of the story and probably into the first part of return of the King is filming these storylines in a way that you're interested in kind of what's happening everywhere to some degree, or at least you give something awesome in all those plot threads. Like we kind of dunked on the Osgilia stuff, but we're going to get a stellar Sam speech coming up that kind of makes all that stuff worthwhile. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of my, my, um, dream. My pipe dream is like, uh, is like a variation on the Lord of the Rings because we're just apparently going to get remakes until we all fucking die. Um, but like a variation on the Lord of the Rings that like leans into the fact that the Lord of the Rings is ostensibly just told through the story through like the actual book of the Red Book of the West March, which is like Frodo um, and pals um, writing down the thing that they went through. So so it's recorded after the fact in universe. And then that's the story that's presented to us, which is translated by the author J.R.R. Tolkien. Like, I would love to see a, a, a variation of the Lord of the Rings that like leans into that and then takes a sort of Rashomon approach to it where like, you know, we see um, all of these different elements, these different plot elements and and 
um, have repeated variations on them. So like, okay, we get um, up to uh, the the last march of the Ents as told by uh, Mary. <laughs> and then the last, and then the sort of back half of, of that lead up there retold by Pippin and then into the last march of the Ents. And, and you have a sort of more of an interplay with like the voices, the character voices um, and narrators of, of the film. Um, and 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 more of that sort of um, uh, that that sort of awareness that like you can play with narrative in a way that you can't really play with narrative in in other media um, like novels or 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 uh, on the stage um, via via film um, and, and you know there's sort of the um, oh bugger what is it oh uh, the the Northman my God one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years like the Northman and the Green Green Knight another one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years like by being very genre aware and how they edit their movies I mean the you know the title cards are really the thing that I think really are a way of forcing the audience to remember that they that they are in a movie and not anything else. Um, you know, by having that sort of like medium aware approach to it, um you, you get some really interesting sort of like, relationships i think the like between the viewer and the story and i think something like the lord of the rings would really benefit from it um and it would also mean that because like you need extra time to do that kind of stuff we don't get stuck with fucking osgiliath again so um whoever is getting whatever stupid ridiculous scam uh french game developer studio just got sold the rights to remake the lord of the rings movies i hope you're listening to this podcast uh you frog bastards and i hope you do it exactly like that where uh it's just Rashomon, but dumber, and there's no Osgiliath. Back at Osgiliath, Frodo ignores Faramir's command to stay hidden and decides to offer up himself and the One Ring up to the Nazgul. He's like, hey, you throw this out for me. Fuck, man. I miss Mitch Hedberg. Let's hear that one for shits and giggles, shall we? I've been walking around checking it out. You know, people always trying to hand me out flyers, you know? When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. Frodo is fully ensorcelled. The ring is talking to him, and maybe it's even talking to the Nazgul too. Sam and Faramir both see what's happening and jump into action. Sam wrestles his master away from the claws of the fell beast, while Faramir puts an arrow right in its gullet, sending it scurrying. Sam and Frodo tumble down some steps, and in the end, Frodo is the top, Sam the bottom. <laughs> Frodo is in a fit of frenzy, drawing Sting and holding it to Samwise's neck. It takes a moment and some desperate pleading from Sam before Frodo snaps out of it. Tired, depressed, defeated, Frodo slinks back, 
dropping his elven blade. Frodo may be down, but as we learn in the opening minutes of this film, nothing can dampen Sam's spirits. Through sweat and tears, Sean Astin delivers the most rousing monologue of the entire damn trilogy. Keep your tissues at the ready, folks. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. The shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? But there's some good in this world, Mr. Furtle. And it's worth fighting for. God damn it. Sam is too good for this world, but apparently not good enough for Valinor. Go figure. His words move everyone around him. Samwise has created a blast radius of good vibes to counter the Nazgul's (laughs) MO. Gollum looks sullenly on, and Faramir, son of Denethor, comes forth. I think at last we understand one another, Frodo Baggins. We zoom back over to Helm's Deep, where the winning side gets to catch their breath, but just for a moment. The Battle of Helm's Deep may be done, but the exploding horizon of Mortar makes it clear. Not yet, Snake! It's not over yet! Is that... Is that the first Metal Gear sound clip I've dropped over (laughs) 60 episodes into this podcast? Man, I'm slipping. Frodo, Sam, and Gollum are back on the road again. Sam wonders, will they ever be part of the great stories themselves? I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. What? I wonder if people will ever say, let's hear about Frodo in the ring. And they'll say, yes, it's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was really courageous, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy. The most famousest of hobbits. And that's saying a lot. (laughs) You've left out one of the chief characters. Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. Mr. Frodo, you shouldn't make fun. I was being serious. So was I. Samwise the Brave. I'll just tell you now, 
Samwise the Brave will be the title of our Sam vs. Shelob episode because what else could it be? And speaking of Shelob, her podcaster boyfriend Gollum is cooking up a plan that involves our eight-legged sexy spider. Gollum is the star of The Two Towers, and the movie ends on its star, giving one last two-hander monologue between his inner selves, all presented in one cut as Gollum and Smeagol wrestle with Frodo's betrayal and how to get their precious back. Shake my head, Gollum, reinforcing the patriarchy by having the woman do all the work. (laughs) And with that, Gollum leads Sam and Frodo on to Mordor. The camera lifts up on Ithilien and over the Mountains of Shadow to end on a wide shot of the Forbidden Lands. Barat-dur and Mount Doom in plain view, with Nazgul providing aerial surveillance. And then, we fade to black on the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. Holy shit. Yeah, we did it. Another movie down. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, We'll provide a proper debriefing next time, Al. But let's start here with the Nazgul attack. As the Nazgul weaves above the rooftops, Frodo walks himself out past the soldiers of Gondor and onto a bridge, and the Nazgul rises to meet him. I love the little details as the camera zooms in on the Nazgul. The The sword at its hip and the spikes on the fell beast's back are all clearly visible and detailed. We also get the return of Dirty Fingernails. We haven't seen many of these here as we did in Fellowship of the Ring. Aragorn was a bit grimy after he fell off the cliffs with the Wolves of Isengard, but looks, but it looks like most of our cast has been able to find the showers in between scenes in this movie. <laughs> the Dirty Fingers are of course shown holding the ring, which as mentioned earlier, doesn't get as much dramatic emphasis in the Two Towers as it did in Fellowship. Because once Gollum showed up, we only really saw Frodo playing with the ring once in the Dead Marshes, and that was almost two hours ago. Gollum has been standing in for the conflict of the ring, and we see it briefly when Faramir debates whether to show his quality. Ugh, hurl. Hurl, hurl, hurl. Um, ridiculous. Um, so I, the dirty fingernail shit, right? I've been thinking a lot about this lately, because it is such, like, a very specific thing about this. But I, I, it makes me think of the fact that, like, they were all legitimately hiking around New Zealand to film this, and, and, like... You know, as much as this was a 
big budget production. Um, it was not a kind of safe production, not to like cast aspersions on the, the, the like health and safety of the actual set itself. But I think there's like, you know, all of the movies now are filmed literally just in on on sets in literally green painted green washed um rooms um and and so the fact of like dirty nails is like it it would have to be a very direct creative choice that like they would have to like meticulously apply dirt to these direct or these actors hands every single time they're in screen and then they would obviously make like a big deal about showing those like fucked up nails and you'd really have to linger on it and someone would like make a comment about it being like oh my god why don't you just like clean your nails or whatever some bullshit like that but like there is like this is such like a key kind of component of the kind of deeply organic nature of these movies and and the fact that like yeah they probably deteriorate the nails a bit and like you do see them a lot in camera but also these guys really were just like rough in it in some ways and 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 were like literally connected to the soil beneath their feet um, and i think there's something nice about that there's something you know it's it's like um when you go see a show, like a show that you know really well and like an actor flubs a line, it's not like, oh God, the show is all ruined for me now. It, it's like, oh, there is something deeply human about this. And it feels like, even though like you may feel like bad for the actor or whatever, like you do feel that sort of, it, it immediately evokes something human and you feel that connection to the art um, that you are experiencing. And I think um, although it's just this tiny little detail of these grotty fingers, like there is something deeply human about that. And, and, it is nice to feel that connection to something where it is not literally manicured beyond sort of human recognizable repair. Like, you know, the the kind of Chris Evans problem of like everybody is good looking and nobody there's no sex. Like it the 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 dirty fingernails is sort of the counter to that as horrifying and yeast infection y as that sounds. Like there is something um <laughs> truly like human and organic about it that I that I really miss in a lot of modern movies. Yeah, <clears throat> to continue dunking on um, Disney Plus Star Wars television, <laughs> um, one of the reasons I fucking hate like Kenobi and Boba Fett amongst like, you know, the crummy quality of all of it is like Tatooine is way too clean. Yeah. It does not look like a desert beaten fucking Tunisia. It very obviously is just a CGI set or the most basic backlot filming. Yeah. Like it doesn't look like th this most Isley or most Vespa or wherever the fuck we are in any of these <laughs> stories. Like they don't look like they have the wear and tear of the settings in Tunisia in Star Wars and New Hope or even like Return of the Jedi or something like that. Good Lord, like Jakku and The Force Awakens look like it's seen some shit. Um, but everything in the Disney Plus like television model just looks way too clean and doesn't have that like grit and character that you get just from something like Dirty Fingernails um, or the equivalent thereof. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's this it's this problem of limitlessness, right? Like like all of these shows now, the only limit they have is like apparently like how fucking good they can be. Apparently there's an upper limit on that um, that they can't cross over. But like, you know, when when you see the like shittiness of the like actor's fingernails it is because there was a limit placed on this somewhere like they couldn't spring to pamper these fucking actors beyond belief there is a you know they were just living their lives as they were filming this and and the weather beaten look of a lot of the the things the set pieces and the costumes certainly for the fellowship is because they were actually genuinely weather beaten and they were genuinely lived in and and they were they were lived in and and weathered because there was a limit they couldn't just afford to replace all of the shit or cg it in post 
And, and, and having that limitation, um, is again, just a great way to feel that human connection in, in art. Um, and, and it also, I think in some ways, because it's unclean and because there is an obvious limit to, to what can go on, it helps to kind of contribute to the sense of stakes in, in these movies, because there is something so human about having dirty nails and it makes you feel frail. It makes Frodo feel like he could legitimately get fucked up, um, and 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 that it just it just contributes so much to the kind of lovely comforting character of this and how how um not real but how how um i guess authentic it feels mhm mm-hmm. there's a shot here i really like it's a wide shot of the nazgûl left of frame with frodo squarely in the center and then the left half of the sky is cloudy with reds and oranges of Mordor. And the right is like clouds breaking and sunlight starting to poke through. It's basically the new day that will come, as Sam is going to put it shortly. And like all the detail work of Askiliath, the mountains in the background, it all just looks really good for as uninteresting as what's happening is. <laughs> um, it's actually just like a really well composed shot that I always try to single out when I'm watching. And it's so like antithetical to the Shire as well. Like if there is one shot in this whole series that, you know, almost more so than Baradur in some ways, like if there's one shot that really epitomizes um, everything that the Shire is not, it is the dark craggy mountains. It is the ruined buildings, the ancient ruined buildings. It is the magical horror that is the Nazgul. And it is also the, the sort of sense that, Frodo is tiny because in the Shire we don't we don't see Frodo as as tiny except for when Gandalf's around. You know this is just the way you know the world is built to their to their requirements. Whereas here it is just my God, we're not in Kansas anymore anymore, Toto, are we? Oh man, there's another great adaptation idea. They should have used the scene to kind of do a far scouring of the Shire, like. Um, juxtaposition or like this is what would happen to us if we let the ring rule or something like that Um, they could have done a lot more yeah anyways (laughs) Um, so the score completely drops out at this moment all you can hear is the slow heavy flaps of the fell beast wings and in our first Osgiliath episode we talked about how the ring is fucking up Frodo's sensory perception and here too the only audible sound is made by a ring wraith a thing that only exists because of the ring (laughs) A little bit of tense music creeps in as Sam runs up, but the gardener's voice is completely muted, as was as it was earlier when Frodo heralded the arrival of the Nazgul. All we hear is the murmuring of the ring as the fell beast claws look to snatch up Frodo. For the fourth time since Frodo has left Bag End, the presence of the Nazgul compels him to put on the ring. Three of the times, including right here, Sam is able to stop him short. The fourth, of course, was Weathertop, and, well, that didn't work out so well for anyone involved. (laughs) So Sam is not just trying to wrestle Frodo away, but also making sure he doesn't actually put the ring on at the same time. Sam's head is in the game. Faramir gets an arrow into the Nazgul to ward him off, and I'm sorry, not sorry, Emily, (laughs) but I wish Faramir got more of an action beat here. The single arrow sending off the Nazgul feels like they nerfed the fell beast. Level one spells are killing major bosses. (laughs) Since they are so out of bounds with Faramir's character anyways at this point, him having to work a little harder and maybe just barely surviving on would be more convincing of his turn to let Frodo go. And it would have worked nicely in parallel with Boromir's ending at the end of the previous movie. Yep. 
yeah. And, and, but also, like, I think it, it is more in line with, like, with Faramir in, in the books. Because um, be, because it is not that Faramir is untouchable in, in the books. And, and in fact, on, on his... Um, on his way back from Osgiliath the first time, um, he he is knocked out, um, not not by a Nazgul, uh, by uh, by a Har- Haradiero, um, Dart, but but <laughs> but he is not infallible, um, and I think um, in the fact that we can see that he's not infallible, I think it adds to his stature in some ways because there's a whole bunch of men who are also riding back with him who are immediately fucked up, um, and Faramir is the last one to to fall to it. Um, but, but he does still fall to it. Um, and, and I think there's also something like, again, I don't think it's just my problem with this movie in general, where they make a lot of choices that are just clearly to serve a very specific kind of action beat, but like, aren't really about like the narrative in in some and, and Faramir like one shot KOing the fucking Nazgul here, the fell beast is like, okay, well, Eowyn just looks fucking worthless now. Like, Eowyn just looks fucking <laughs> worthless because apparently any old incompetent twat can take one of these things out. It's just the hobbits are useless, but, like, Faramir is tripping over his dick every other scene here, and he gets a single shot off on on the fell beast, and that's it. Um, and, and so Eowyn's feet, massive, enormous, very impressive feet um, in, in Return of the King just feels weakened internally by it um and instead if they had had that sort of more long drawn out battle had other people falling to the fell beast before faramir falls then not just the the sort of boromir comparison but like everything else in the movie is in the the subsequent movie is is strengthened by the fact that we have a sense of scale for what these things can do yeah, because uh, when the Nazgul arrive at Minas Tirith uh, during the Battle of Pelennor Fields, that's really supposed to be like, oh, fuck, the B2 bombers are here kind yes. of thing. Um, but then you're like, oh, well, if one person can land one arrow out of the like hundreds of Gondorian soldiers, uh, that could be enough to do it. And it's like these Nazgul are swooping in close to the battlement, so it seemed doable. Um, so it's like, this is one of those things where just two more minutes would have like done so much more if they just had... Faramir do a bunch of stuff. Maybe the arrow makes the Nazgul get off the fell beast, but doesn't send him flying. And then they lock swords or something. Uh, it just, I don't know. It's just so nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But y- you know what? The film doesn't care about Faramir. So I just won't either. <laughs> uh, they do care about Sam and Frodo who are in a pile at the bottom of the steps. <laughs> Frodo is on top, blade drawn, an extreme close-up on his face, his eyes brighter and bigger than ever, sting glinting in the coming daylight. There's a real subtle eye movement from Sean Astin here when he sees Frodo on top and then glances down to see Frodo has the sword at his neck, and then tears start streaming down his face as he asks Frodo if he doesn't remember his Sam. Sean Astin is, like, I don't want to say... Like, he is an unsung hero of this movie. It's not like people don't recognize how great Sam as a character is, but I don't think there's maybe as much credit for, like, the work that Sean Astin is doing in these movies, the acting work that Sean Astin is doing in these movies. Um, Because it's not to say that Elijah Wood isn't a very, very talented actor and isn't really putting his whole uh, Elijah-sy into this um, (laughs) series. But, like, Frodo has a very specific role to play in these movies. And if you don't have a Sam who um, can compellingly make us believe that that Frodo could come back from this horrible position he's in, then you don't really have much of a movie at all. And and so Sean Astin is doing this kind of incredible turn of 
literally carrying the entire Shire on his shoulders. He has to be the Hobbit who reminds us what Hobbits are and who reminds us that that Frodo was once someone who was distinct to the ring. And so, you know, Sean Astin's whole... Um, you know, Sam's character, but like Sean Astin in particular, is the whole character is oriented towards the, this higher sort of service towards Frodo, both in the literal and narrative sense, but also in, in the sort of creative sense that like everything, you know, Sam does has to better Frodo. Um, and it can't just be done for the sake of flaunting how good and cool Sean Astin is. And 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 he really understood that brief and, and really makes makes hay with it. Uh, makes hay of it. And and I cannot imagine how fucking horrific these movies would be if they if Sean Astin weren't get putting out the performance that, that he is, especially here. Yeah, I think for me, this is like the biggest margin between how much I like the film character versus how much I like um the book character or rather how much more the film performance enhances it. Yeah. Like I think Bernard Hill is great, but I also think Theoden's a great character on the page, you know, <laughs> um, a different one, but like yes. he's yeah, yeah, absolutely. like, he is a great character on the page. Whereas I'm not as into Sam on the, what's it called uh, on the page. And frankly, the times I basically gave up trying to read through all of Lord of the Rings were in book four and book six. Um, just like the pure Frodo and Sam stuff. Cause I just find the big action, E battle, um, cross-cultural, cross-speciesal, um, like battles happening with Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn, just more my speed of story. Um, and this is where I think Sean Ashton really made all the, that half of the story really come alive to me. Yeah. Um, because I think he is just, I think he might be my favorite performance now. It's going to be one of the things I've changed on because I've always said Bernard Hill for like 20 years. <laughs> um, but what, but I think Sean Astin is elevating material that was more needing of uplifting for me. Yeah. Um, just because I am just so much more intrinsically interested everywhere else in the story. Um, the fact that he makes this all compelling, him and Gollum, Andy Circus, I don't want to miss out on him too. Um, but this this set of scenes is definitely Sam's moment to shine in this movie. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, Andy Serkis is performing some like technical marvels with what he is doing with Gollum as a character and also some performance marvels. I mean, Gollum, we we understand Gollum and feel for Gollum in the way that we do because Andy Serkis is putting out such an incredible performance, but he's also putting out a main character performance. And Sean mm -hmm. Astin is doing one of the most incredible sort of supporting character performances I can possibly think of. Absolutely. The camera does a few shot reverse shots here, but maintaining the simple upshot on Frodo to denote power and downshot on Sam's face to show that he's being overpowered. The camera keeps this upshot on Frodo even as he backs away, only giving it up once Sam pulls himself to his feet. I don't want to litigate Return of the King here and now, but clearly this little moment is building to their fissure later on the steps up to Shelob's cave. Yeah, the films are definitely introducing more conflict between Frodo and Sam, but my thinking is if they're going to do it, you might as well commit to it. Frodo's reaction here seems involuntary, or at least instinctual. He was ring-teasing the Nazgul and didn't see Sam come up behind him. Like I just said, Sam's shouts were muted, so Frodo's overridden senses at first would just be like, someone came up behind me and tackled me. So Frodo instinctually reacts, Someone grabbed me, and now I'm ready to defend myself. But as exhibited by the malice in Elijah's eyes, we know this isn't the real quote-unquote Frodo. 
I've seen Frodo be easily stabbed and attacked for two movies now. The dude's first instinct is never to gut someone. So him drawing a blade here really feels like the ring animating the person who holds it. Maybe it hoped that Sam would try to fight back and we'd have a Smeagol versus Deagle 2.0 right in the presence of a host of men. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing for me is like, um, I am not quite so ready to write this off as not Frodo because um, I, I think the power of the ring is is taking the the worst parts of people or sometimes the best parts of people, the most extreme parts of people, whether that's good or bad, and and twisting it for its own will. Um, you know, Boromir falls because Boromir is so desperate to protect his people. That's like a really valiant thing, but that gets twisted against him. Um, Sam really wants a flaming sword, so that's what the ring promises <laughs> him. Um, uh, but I think the, 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 for me, like the ambiguity around whether like, or, or not ambiguity, but like, for me, it is the fact that like, I could conceivably believe that Frodo would turn on Sam like this. Like there is a part of Frodo that is capable of this is the really important part. And I think it, it like that for me sets up why Sam just accepts Frodo telling him to fuck off and return to the king because um, I don't think I could like, not let it get, but like, I don't think I could buy into it so much if like, if that kind of seed wasn't already planted for Sam of like, this is something that like Frodo could conceivably do to me. And I think there is that kind of moment where like, you know, the, the ring in some ways just kind of removes uh, Frodo's inhibitions and it gets to the part of him that is kind of um, the, the base yourself, the, the, the part that isn't good, isn't perfect. Um, and, and I think there's something kind of, simultaneously sweet and um tragic about that because this is the moment that catalyzes in some ways um sam's speech um well not in some ways this is the moment that catalyzes sam's speech and and i think sam here has a moment where he could see this kind of no holds barred frodo and be like yeah fuck it i'm going back i'm going home i'm going back to the shire but but he makes a conscious decision i think to stick by frodo until the bitter end um and not just to stick by frodo for the sake of the nobility of destroying the ring, he's sticking by Frodo because he's sticking by Frodo. He's not sticking by the quest. Um, and I think having that moment here be, you know, he sees what Frodo is capable of and what Frodo is capable of towards him. And despite all of that, he chooses to continue to love Frodo um, and continue to do what he must do to make sure that Frodo can be be freed of all of this. I think that kind of heightens that, um, the, the kind of scariness, but also the kind of beauty of this scene for me. Okay, yeah, I do agree with all that, not to just completely run away from what I said, <laughs> but I didn't mean like real Frodo in that sense. That was yeah. more just like purpley prose of saying like not his better side yeah. or better self or his better instinct. The Frodo or who hasn't yet had his coffee. <laughs> yes, correct. Don't. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. I think you got the good joke in. So now we get to Sam's speech, which... Fuck, it's great. A big chunk of which is lifted from a passage in the chapter, The Stairs of Kirith Ungol, and this is also where a big chunk of the Samwise the Brave dialogue comes from. This speech was actually not part of the original script of this film. It was added during the reshoot processes after primary filming had been completed. They felt the need for a little extra oomph, so they grabbed the text and pulled the speech out of that passage I just mentioned which is absolutely bonkers to me. Because if you had told me Jackson and company had come up with Sam's speech right away and then wrote the rest of the two towers around it to specifically end here, I would totally believe you. And this this is where I have to give it to Emily's Peter Jackson did the Iraq war propaganda. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> we can actually point to that Peter Jackson did say he felt he needed to add this because of 9-11 to give a little bit of a morale booster to the ailing countries in, or the ailing peoples in the Imperial Corps. Um, we really needed to feel good as about we were going to go blow up a couple of brown countries. So, oh, Emily, you got this one. I got nothing to say. Peter Jackson also did the fucking anthrax letters. Oh my God, please don't sue me. I just remembered I live in the UK and could totally get sued for that. That is a joke. Peter Jackson definitely did not do the anthrax letters. <laughs> I'm glad we have this all on air now. Oh, shit. Um, a fun fact though is, um, and me and Emily talked about this a bit off mic, is that apparently, and I had just found this out, Sean Astin got really annoyed by people constantly asking him about how the Lord of the Rings were about 9-11 and the war on terror during the press tour. Um, I think it's mostly from his like, working standpoint where he had like finished filming these movies like three years before or three years ago and before 9-11 so he wasn't really thinking about them but i think emily's made pretty convincing arguments otherwise yeah he, he flew the plane um yeah no it's, it's funny because it parallels in a lot of ways how fucking furious jr tolkien got like at people who are constantly like oh the lord of the rings it's a it's a cold war parable right and sauron is the soviet union and tolkien had to keep going no nope nope not at all the case nope not even a little bit and like in a lot of his later letters you can really sense the kind of pure hate and rage age um uh, funneling off of him every time people ask him like what this what the lord of the rings is meant to be a parable for and every single time he has to be like no it is not that please fuck off forever um so nice to see sean astin handshake jr tolkien i swear to god this is not about 9-11 yeah to be fair i'm almost always on the side of creatives getting annoyed by the questions that are asked of them. <laughs> um, I am almost always for that. That's how we got the wonderful personality that is Harrison Ford. Um, so I, I, I cannot uh, bag against it. I don't know what really to say about Sam's 148 word speech here. It's just great. He's not forwarding any sort of radical thought or something that my brain is going to chew on long after it. It's more just a feast for the heart and perfectly in line with the trilogy's themes. We've talked a lot about stories about stories, the never-ending story, like the road goes ever on and on, and all those yada yada themes we come to, you know, to listen to us. All the stories we hear explain the what or how of things, but Sam's speech really speaks to the why of it all. Why are those stories great? Why do we share them? Why do we revisit them? Old stories are like old friends, old Nan says in A Song of Ice and Fire. You have to visit them from time to time. The words of the speech are intentionally abstract, high-minded, and doesn't really use any words or proper nouns from Middle Earth. It's crafted to be a passage you can lift and recite in any contest, speak to the greater battles of good versus evil, such as trying to talk to someone before having your morning coffee. There's also a sort of awareness, maybe meta-awareness, that what Sam and Frodo are doing here will be one of those great stories, just like Bilbo's journey to the Lonely Mountain. When Sam says how can the world go back to how, much, how it was after so much bad has happened is when we start zooming around Middle-earth, to Helm's Deep and to Isengard. Gandalf's goofy smile aside, everyone else is kind of stunned. Theoden didn't expect to be yelling victory, Aragorn is surprised they survived the night. Merry and Pippin still can't believe they unleashed that on <laughs> Isengard. And everywhere the scenes are brighter, signifying that a new day has come, and it is shining out the clearer. It's very wisely putting moving images to Sam's words in meaningful and coherent ways. I'd call it even good editing. 
And I love, love, love that when Sam finishes with this, there's some good in this world line, he picks up Frodo first, both of them standing and looking at each other eye to eye, undoing the power imbalance moments ago when Frodo tops Sam. <laughs> we discussed musical frisson during Rohan. We discussed musical free zone during the Rohan charge at the end of Helm's Deep, and all that applies to Howard Shore's music here. When Sam starts narrating, you get hints of concerning hobbits, the instrumentation we know from that theme, but we do not get a full bar. Not yet, anyways. We get a drum roll that climaxes and releases to some soaring victory bars before returning to an elevated version of Concerning Hobbits as Sam wraps up and then a more traditional Concerning Hobbits bar when Sam and Frodo reconcile and Faramir lets them go. Uh, some other stuff also happens during Sam's montage. Uh, we got our last shot of Eowyn in this movie, and she's giving a hug to Aragorn, <sighs> thus completing her character arc of wanting to give Aragorn a <laughs> hug in this movie. Uh, we get our actual last shot of Christopher Lee in the theatrical editions, where Jesus. he's shutting the doors on his balcony in Orthanc. And then we do get a pretty great long shot of a flooded Isengard, now basically a lagoon that surrounds a giant spire. Oh, come on. You got to have something to say about that last day Owen scene. Yeah, my yeah, I am a misogynist. I love that scene. I love that. That's how they take a, an incredibly complex um, uh, plot dealing with uh, the way that patriarchy works and wields and warps itself uh, around notions of power and kingship and a woman's place and, and the right of women to be autonomous human beings and boils it down instead to she's a simp. I love that, and I think that's good, and that is not at all my personal 9-11. So, anyways, <laughs> uh, after all that, the Nazgul attack and Sam's touching words, Faramir decides to let Frodo and company go, <laughs> even at risk of his life. Nice one, dude. God. I uh, don't really have much to say about it. Uh, uh, it's just time for the hobbits to move on. Hats off to Sam Spunk, though. As soon as they are ordered to be released, he brushes off the guard who was holding on to him. I hate it. I hate it. Um, I also hate that this is the only place that Sam gets to, like, be a bit of a smartass. I mean, I guess he gets to be the, do you want to know how your brother died thing? But, like, Sam in in these chapters of The Two Towers, like, is really, like, showing up how little he cares for, like, Faramir's heirs and graces. And, like, it is, dare I say it, pretty much the only time anyone does that to him, except for Eowyn, who repeatedly tells him to fuck off. Um, and and I think it's, like, it's nice because it's, it's these character-building moments for both Faramir because we get that he is a a person who's accustomed to being treated like one way and Sam who is just so fucking sick of it all that he no longer cares about the sort of class striations um, and I think they kind of just take it away from Sam in a lot of ways um, and 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 I think in some ways the, the fact of them taking it away makes Sam's overall decision and like relationship to Frodo feel less interesting to me um, because it is less of like that Sam kind of overcoming the weirdness of a, of a kind of transactional class-based sort of subservience into something more clearly approaching friendship um, and fraternal love um, or other <laughs> love, romantic love, uh, shagging loads. Um, and, and instead it's just this like, it's just a bit of a nothing burger. It's fine. It's this is the ramblings of an insane person. But yeah, I wish I wish he'd been a little bit uh, <laughs> spunkier earlier. For sure, for sure. 
Gandalf gets a quick moment here as well, on horseback with the other leaders at Helm's Deep. Just some quick narration stuff. Sauron's revenge will be swift and hard, and now our fate rests with Frodo and Sam. This little column of leaders will be on their way to Isengard when we kick off Return of the King. And I'm a mark for horizon shots of Mordor in the distance, so all good on that frontier too. We get one of those. Do we have room to praise Sam some more? Yes. The Samwise the Brave Chatter is a continuation of the tales that really matter. As I said, we are now contextualizing Sam and Frodo's story into the greater epic of Middle-earth. I think the part I find specifically charming is the assumptions underlying this hypothetical retelling. Sam frames it as something he would tell his children one day over a fire, necessarily implying success if not an outright happy ending. It's that classic Sam optimism, the spirit that never dampens, that keeps everything going. Like like Frodo says, he would he wouldn't have gotten very far without Sam. Yeah, and I think it is one of these things, you know, I've quibbled a lot with the the kind of obsession in this movie of, of hope as a moral indicator. Like those who lose hope are those who are necessarily less moral than than those who have maintained hope. Um I I don't love that in a lot of cases, but I do like here how how it shows this like willingness to see the future and to work towards that future sort of unrelentingly um as this this sort of um incredible strength of sam's um be- because um because frodo is carrying on even though he has sees no future for himself and sort of looks at sam like he's a bit naive for thinking there's a future you know we have this one very specific um understanding of, of hope and and of duty i guess more than anything um and sam i think is this alternate to to duty above all else his his duty really or his motivation is is his hope and is his his desire to see a future and it's not oh well I've given my word. It is oh well. Actually, this is going to be a benefit—a benefit for all of us. And I think that kind of um, wide-ranging uh, awareness of how to keep something going is why, like Sam, the character ends up being you know uh, uh, an, an important political figure. He's he's you know he's the he's a he's ends up as a mayor um, at at the end of this, and that's quite the the kind of change. And it is because he is this 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 person who is able to sort of find always find that little bit of light um to 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 keep going and to motivate others to go as well um even when he himself really doesn't have any particular um immediate individual advantage in doing so Sam hasn't done a whole lot in this movie up until this point but this is all setting him up to be in my opinion the real hero of Return of the King the act 3 protagonist of note And I'm considering Return of the King to be that third act, just to be clear there. Only speaking for myself, but Fellowship of the Ring is Frodo's movie to me, while Aragorn is the Act 2 protagonist here in this film, The Two Towers. Sam will be the Act 3 hero, which very much lines up with the books and film literally ending on his doorstep. So that said, what better way to end Act 2 to have its denouement feature Sam's speech and the acknowledgement of his unflinching bravery? It's a perfect note to end on and plays beautifully as a transition into Return of the King if you're doing a marathon. (laughs) At the end of all things Two Towers, I'll also heap some general praise on Wood and Aston here. Of the three storylines that drive the Two Towers, theirs is the weakest. Sorry, Faramir and Emily. (laughs) I think it's at its best in the first half of the movie, The Dead Marshes and Blackgate and Stewed Rabbits. It probably 
rightly takes a backseat to Helm's Deep and Isengard in terms of what they were doing production-wise. And I think that's also in part because Sam and Frodo are the third movie. So they have some of the weakest material and least amount of time in the last hour and a half, but they still pull off at least an incredible emotional finish to all this. Yep. Uh, Yes. And I think this is also one of these... So, okay, so uh, uh, apologies for all of the constant comparisons to Star Wars aside. Um, If you think about the middle part of Star Wars, the original trilogy, and what that ends on, which is Empire, and it ends on this really kind of sad, slightly hopeful moment, but like, you know, Vader is Luke's father, Luke is missing his hand, everybody's fucking off, they're all fucked, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And we end with this shot of, you know, Luke having had his hand repaired, and Luke and Leia and the two droids staring out at the starport on Haven 1. Um, And... It is a silent sort of thing. You know, Luke says, oh, uh, to to Lando, you know, I'll see you on Tatooine. Although he says Tatooine there weirdly and it always kind of bugs me. But, you know, there's that little bit, but there's not really like a, a, a statement of principles going forward. It is we're, we're going to go find Han, but like the rebellion, all this other stuff, eh, we're not really going to comment on the state of that right now. And there's an, an enormous amount of agency, I think, in having that this movie, having the two towers end in the way that it does here with Sam and Frodo kind of stating their principles for going forward. Um, and, and it really puts them in this position of every single decision they make is important from here on out. And, and the things that they say and do have this tremendous amount of weight to it. Not saying that like, you know, that isn't the case necessarily in star Wars, but I, but I think it is quite nice to have these two tiny little creatures really feel like they are the driving force of, of this story. Um, and, and, and not just the driving force of the story, but able to sort of take whatever is thrown at them and to really sort of wrap their heads around it and, and kind of own it. And I, and I think that is also like, it's the structural kind of optimism that, that benefits the end of the movie. The final beat of the movie features the star of the show, Andy Serkis's Gollum. <laughs> he gets one last solo two-hander, switching between his Gollum and Smeagol personalities in what appears to be a single cut when watching. This is the third Gollum Smeagol two-hander of the film. The first one, they used the 180-degree rule to set up the personalities. The second one was done with Gollum's back to Faramir. And now, as Gollum and Smeagol begin to connive together, it's presented as one long take, with everything out in the open for the audience to see. It's a great kinetic sequence, too. Gollum is diving and twisting around all the roots and branches, and the camera hurriedly follows along, trying to keep up with the little stinker. He is pretty violent in his diatribe here, too, literally wanting to stab Sam's eyes out. Yes, uh, I'm going to do possibly the most unhinged take I've kept bottled up for a while. But like, I think we have to think about Gollum in these movies, kind of like Isis. Um, and that like the genesis point of Isis, right, is like all of the people that the Americans threw in prison and then tortured in Iraq. And then like turns out throwing all of the like torturing these people, blowing them up, destroying their economy, ruining their chance of ever having like a life worth living, and then putting them all in a room together with nothing to do all day does in fact breed a pretty strong opposition movement. Um, and also one that's like not liable to like take any prisoners. Um, and I think Gollum in these movies is effectively that where like, you know, Frodo is like forcing him along by like dangling his little dime bag of smack like in front of him being like when we get to the 7-eleven you could finally have it but then like faramir is like i i know it's not really in this one but it but it is also kind of in this one like um, faramir is a cunt 
to him is just awful, uh, incredibly, <laughs> incredibly violent, um, and 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 full of awful words. And there's not really, you know, not the book Faramir is like a fount of compassion towards Gollum, but there's not really a sense that like he sees Gollum in it, movie Faramir sees Gollum as anything more than literally a rat. Um, and so you kind of understand why. Um, why Gollum is doing this. And I think there's almost a sense of like, okay, maybe Gollum is just totally enslaved to the ring here and not really making choice of, choices of his own. But I think he is also kind of making choices of his own. And I think they're also kind of rational choices because he's a, his back is against the wall here. He knows he's fucked. And the least he's going to do is take a whole bunch of the people who are his uh, you know, jailers and torturers down with him. And and there's there's something kind of um, really sort of brutally um, understandable about that, you know, if not um, encourageable, if not morally flawless, certainly you can see why this is going down the way that it is. And you can also see the different choices that could have been made at any point in, in Gollum's story, as we've seen it on screen so far, that would have mitigated, um, you know, mitigated the, the insane shit he's about to do to these guys. The film does finally cut when Gollum sticks his head out and waves down Frodo and Sam to encourage them on to their journey. To no one's surprise, I also love the final shot of this movie. The camera lifts up above the tree line and over the Mountains of Shadow and settle on Mordor, where we see the two towers of Mount Doom and Saruman field goal posting the screen, with a couple of the Nazgul flying around on their fell beasts. It's a haunting note to leave on, which transitions perfectly into Gollum's song, which plays over the end credits, and which we'll talk about next week in our wrap-up episode. I love the imagery from the gray dying of Athelion, where Sam and Frodo are ab about to go, to the Black Mountains, and then the fiery reds of hell. It's an arresting image. All right, so so there's kind of two points here for me, at least my kind of thinking on, on the ending of this movie. Uh, one is the kind of m meta, the wider sort of structural discussion about like about whether or not like this is the order in which these stories should have been structured, and like why I think there is more benefit in having like in an ideal world, this would have been a six movie um, exploit, uh, and and it would have followed more or less. The structure of the books because i think there is like a very valid reason why the books are structured the way that they are um and 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 i think like there is a lot of sort of tension and and detail work that is obviously necessarily lost by shunting it down to three movies i know that there are so many so many reasons why that just was not possible when, when they were making these films so like fine we'll put that aside and there's there is, I think, something nice, though, in, in closing it the way that they close it, not just because it's a reflection of Fellowship of the Ring, um, but because I think it's actually the strongest ending of all of the possible of all of the films. Um, Peter Jackson, I feel, is very bad at sticking the ending uh, of movies. Um, I think Fellowship Skates By uh, is just fine, um, even though I think there are parts of it that kind of drag or could have been cut down. Um, this, I think, is the perfect ending uh, in, in every imaginable way. Return of the King, when we get there, I just hate all 20 of the endings of Return of the King, and I find it difficult to get through. But but um, having, you know, 9-11 adaptation acknowledged, I think it is it is incredibly good and, and sustainable of a choice to, to have it end on this kind of up moment. Because if you look at the counter, um, it, it, its counterpart in the book where Sam is alone 
Um, it's beautiful writing in the book. It is absolutely some of the most beautiful writing in the book. You know, it is Sam um, finally making it in, into to Mordor um, and alone and, and looking up and seeing the the star, uh, a star twinkling in the distance. And that's that's such a beautiful way to end this. And, and it's such a terrifying setup for Return of the King. I keep wanting to say Revenge of the King, um, Return of the King. Um, <laughs> and I think instead here having this last gasp of of camaraderie um, and this last sense of Sam and Frodo against the world um, before we start Return of the King with it is Sam and Frodo against one another and they're each fighting to have the world on their side. And it, it, it is this high note, this needed high note um, to to kind of make the the immediate dropout, the the you know the floor dropping out at the start of um, Return of the King, just feel all that much worse because it's like guys, what the fuck? We thought we had ended this very well. And um, the book, the book counter part, I think, um, is really successful for for where it comes in the book. Uh, not to sound like a moron, like obviously things come in the book the way that they come, and I think it works really well there. But given the fact that these movies don't have six movies in which to to tell the story of, of the six books of The Lord of the Rings, I think they do it basically fine. Um, however, um, I do think there is also something a little kind of unnerving almost in that that zoom up um, to show Mordor at the end doesn't feel as close to me as I think it should. It just kind of feels like the zoom from the Emin Wheel at the end of Fellowship. And then I'm like, oh, so these guys still have like a couple days walking before they even get there. And there's not quite that sense of urgency that that there is in the books where like it drops to a close and you're like, oh shit, like, oh shit, it's all starting now. I don't think there's quite that feeling because it's too much of a sigh at the end of the battle or at the end of the sort of middle part of the war here. It doesn't quite have that feeling of, oh my God, everything is about to go wrong and I just have to keep turning all of the pages because if I don't keep turning all the pages, I won't be able to find out before I go to bed whether or not Frodo and Sam survive. And and that is my kind of quibble <laughs> with the ending, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's basically at the heart of the most cited criticism of this ending is basically Fellowship of the Ring ended with Frodo and Sam being close to Mortar, and then Two Towers ends with them being close to Mortar, but <laughs> elsewhere, um, or maybe just slightly closer, probably not even. We, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't done the actual, like, the leagues between, like, the Emin Meal and the Black Gate to from Minas... I have. Um, from it is closer. From to Minas Morgul. Yeah, okay, it is It closer. is, like, technically closer um, by, I think, like, about three to four hundred miles, but I don't think they do a good job of conveying it visually. <laughs> And I, I honestly don't think they're trying to. No. Um, as we mentioned, they're not really hitting you over the head with maps. They have the prologue and then they have the one Faramir scene that you hate. <laughs> um, so th like I told you, when I was watching these movies the first hundred times, I didn't even know that they were going from northwest to southeast on a map. Um, just because it's pretty vague in terms of how the story goes. Um, in terms of what they actually show you and tell you, really. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it, I think it works. Um, I think Shelob is perfectly placed in the middle of Return of the King, both tonally, thematically, and in terms of just pacing out the story. So I think it would be a little bit overstuffed if they really focused on getting um, Shelob into this movie. I could see a case for getting them onto the footsteps of Minas Morgul by the end of this movie, perhaps. Or like, you know, Faramir lets them go and then we do a little fade. Ha, huh, going back to our editing conversation. <laughs> and we kind of see them kind of just with the like, the dead city off in the distance because nothing really nominally happens to them <laughs> between here and 
when they get to Minas Morgul, there are scenes of them, but it's mostly them kind of wandering Athelion. And I like those scenes, you know, they're fun hangout scenes and it's good to see the country and whatnot, whatnot. Um, and a lot of like some of the Gollum stuff is in there, like in terms of setting up his plan. Um, but in terms of things that actually matter, um, nothing really happens in between now and when they get to Minas Morgul. So they could have possibly deposited them closer to that doorstep if they wanted to just save some time or get closer to that, oh shit, we're finally here kind of feeling that um, the books allude to. And for me, the books kind of set up Kirith Ungol as the entrance point into the broader lands of Mordor. Whereas with the films, I kind of feel like when Frodo and Sam arrive at Minas Morgul is really them arriving at Mordor. I don't know if that makes sense, and yeah. I'm not saying that's how everyone should feel, but I just think the the way the doom sets on, and then it kind of escalates once Sam and Frodo get past Kirith Ungol. Yeah, I guess there's also something kind of interesting, like an interesting kind of uh, deviation here, um, because like the fact that the end of this movie was amended to cope with 9-11 is interesting, because... Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien was writing the end of the Two Towers at one of the lowest parts of World War II. I mean, this is this is 1944, and the Allies are fucked. The Allies are fucked. It is a horrible time to be um, in in the uh, the Alliance. It, uh, uh, one of the Allies, and <laughs> um, it is it is incredibly grim. It is incredibly depressing. It is full of despair. Now, Tolkien would have been, I think. By and large, aware that the, the, his books were not going to be published, uh, his book rather was not going to be published at this exact moment. But I think there is something interesting in, in in terms of like authorial relationship to the audience that he doesn't feel the need to try and change the ending of the Two Towers to make the audience feel better about anything. He's not trying to like cheer them up or give them cause for optimism because I think he's taking the the story as a concerted whole. Um, he obviously didn't know that the publishers were going to, you know, cut the book up into three different parts and release them separately and, and was vehemently against that. But, but even still, I think the fact that there is not really this desire to like do this kind of comfort um, routine for the audience and to just let them marinate in the fact that everything is really bad and let that be the kind of emotional tone and scene setter for the 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 fifth and sixth books of, of this story is very interesting to the kind of slightly more coddled approach or coddling approach that Peter Jackson and co take that that feels very much like oh movies have to make you movies and stories should make you feel good and and there's something sort of not quite right or good um or or totally complete about a story that leaves you feeling a little uh, at the end of it and and I'm I'm inclined to not just as my sort of gut gut uh, you know deference to Tolkien, but I'm kind of inclined to agree with this. Like sometimes it is fine to have the end of a story or the partial end of a story leave you feeling like things are actually kind of fucked and kind of shitty, and 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 you don't need to have a sort of high note, a call to a call to joy, a call to to hope at the end of every story that you have. Sometimes it's fine for shit to just be fucked. That's interesting because I kind of feel that the last shot of Mordor combined with Gollum song over the end credits kind of does that work for you. Um, or is that setting a tone like despite all the big victories we just saw, things are still really bleak. 
Um, so it's not like the two towers is ending with like the main Star Wars theme blasting as written and directed by George Lucas flashes on the screen, um, which, you know, kind of always gets the blood pumping regardless. Um, this one kind of feels like you're sitting and wallowing with some sad girl music um, at the end <laughs> of it. It would be like on my Spotify, sad, depressed girl playlist that it offers me every day that I open the app. Um, so um, I do kind of, and I feel like some of that Gollum speech is also that like I, for me, there's kind of a buffer of, God, I don't want to call it content, but like a buffer between like Sam's like high note speech versus kind of the stuff that comes after. Cause it literally ends with the, like a Lady Macbeth style, I'm going to kill them all kind of monologue. Um, and then fades to kind of a melancholy music and last visual. So um, I think they were maybe going for using other tools other than the narrative to get to that kind of same emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, fair. Uh, my other take, which is probably one of my more insane takes of the time, uh, or uh, on this podcast rather, is that I kind of like Frodo and Sam only being in Mordor proper for like the last hour of the movie, because um, it makes me think of Boromir saying the very air is a poison. So it's almost like there's like a time limit. Like once you're on Mordor, you have like 10 minutes to defeat the boss or else like the CIA is going to bomb the playing field. Sorry, I don't mean to get into Metal Gear Solid 3, <laughs> but it's very much like, oh, once you're in, you have to go. There's no more stopping or whatever. Um, if you stay too long, you're going to get poisoned. So I kind of feel like, and I just might be making this up completely in my head, but I've created a sense that they're like on a clock once they get out of Kirith Ungol and are on the plains of Gorgoroth. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Yeah, I, I so, think I just kind of base appreciate any any take that you feel is insane. I'm just here to support you in that. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate um, the solidarity there. <laughs> Speaking of solidarity, we would like to thank all of you who support our podcast. As you may know, if you sign up at the five and ten dollar levels, you can get a Middle Earth name designed by Emily. We like to thank our ten dollar patrons every episode, and we like to thank our five dollar patrons on a rotating basis. So, Emily, do you want to go first? Yes. Thank you to Lothamana Palinka, aka Johnny Flores Jr. Thanks to Ed the Revelator, aka Silent Spider, the Guardian of Kirith Ungol. Maddie Hugh, aka Threnor of Kolkarthad. Matthew Abbott and Ranro Minyatar. <laughs> Lake Lavella, aka Zach Newman. Sal Quendil, aka Cam Lewis. Toko Tanar, aka Jonathan Dahan. Eruanian Taranen, uh, aka Matthias Hansen. Ronessa, also known as Nick Smith. And Penamel, aka Munjol. And our $5 patrons we'd like to thank today are. Tara, aka Elenastere Rovinde. And Meowndeal <laughs> of Erosto, aka Connor Beaton, love of my life. Aww. Aww. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASO IAF. 
And I'm Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be piloting the surface to air missiles to take out, no, sorry, air to surface missiles that will take out <laughs> Sam and Frodo as they enter Mordor. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, aka Ethroglier and Drethion. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. I can't believe I screwed up the fucking outro. I usually stop looking for edits after this point. That's going to be annoying to remember. (laughs)